Hello and welcome to Civil War Weekly, the podcast that answers the question, what happened this week in the American Civil War? I'm your host, Tim Patrick, and this is episode 12, June 7th through June 13th, 1861. Last week, we talked about a few of the first skirmishes of the war, both surprise actions in Virginia, well, technically they're both in Virginia at this point, but uh, one of them is in what is present-day West Virginia now, Uh, but we talked about both of those. And while those are some of the first of the war, this week we will actually have another first, the first pitched battle, we can say. So uh, both sides planned to have a fight. Uh, we uh, We could describe it that way. But first, let us briefly mention Tennessee. June 8th, 1861 would mark the date of voting for secession by the people of that state. 105,000 to 47,000 votes uh, for leaving the Union were cast. So uh, they had a pretty large majority there uh, in terms of wanting to get out of the Union. The 47,000 mainly came from the eastern part of the state, uh, which we did talk about in a previous episode. Many of those in that region would move toward declaring their own secession from Tennessee. So they're going to say, uh, sort of like what West Virginia will do uh, with Virginia, uh, the eastern part of Tennessee will want to make their own state as well. Violence and arrests by pro-Confederates would erupt uh, after the vote. State forces would soon move into those counties in the eastern part of Tennessee, forcing many to flee uh, to friendlier pastures in Kentucky. We talked before about how a large part of these individuals would fight for the Union. I think it is also important now to mention that a crucial aspect of the hesitation shown by the border states is that they were uh, fearing that they would become battlegrounds, which ultimately did happen for a lot of these places. During the war, Virginia and Tennessee would see large battles, and Missouri would become a battleground for irregular warfare between bushwhackers and jayhawkers sort of like bleeding Kansas, continued. While not the only states to suffer, it is still worth mentioning in connection with some of these votes that we have been talking about through these first couple of episodes. So important to note that that's sort of in the back of the mind in a lot of these individuals who are making uh, decisions here in these states. Checking in with Virginia, we left off with Benjamin Butler building his forces at Fort Monroe. Several regiments from New York, Vermont, and Massachusetts had arrived to swell the Union forces on the peninsula. In fact, so many soldiers were now gathered in the fort that they spelled out into camps that were in the surrounding area. Fort Monroe is on a very narrow peninsula, the fort itself with heavy walls and a moat. In fact, so small was the area that the Union controlled that in the parlay that we talked about with Butler uh, that led to the contraband uh, issue uh, being raised, uh, he actually told his uh, parlay partner rather comically that they owned Virginia, so he would not see why they could not have the safe passage of civilians, uh, which is one of the requests that the Confederate uh, officer wanted to make of Butler. Camp Hamilton was established across from the fort on the main peninsula to secure safe drinking water. 
Camp Butler was established at Newport News. Newport News is named for Christopher Newport, the captain of the Susan Constant, one of the vessels delivering the settlers to Jamestown in 1607. It is said that at this point the settlers learned of reinforcement and resupply, causing them to not abandon the colony in the early 1600s. Butler had been receiving intelligence from George Scott, one of the escaped slaves who actually did, uh, they were the, he was the subject of uh, the parlay. Uh, so he is assisting the Union forces, and he had actually even spied on the Confederate positions, which were nearby, at a place called Big Bethel. Big Bethel was a Baptist church, which had established a smaller congregation further down the peninsula, known as Little Bethel. Butler had under his command some 6,000 troops as opposed to 1,500 Confederates. He had also received orders that he could move his men against the rebels so long as it was within half a day's march of his positions, which, in fact, they were. Confederates were also harassing any patrols in the area, which led Butler to want to come up with a plan to eradicate that problem. Butler would actually uh, come up with a battle plan where the federal forces would attack in two prongs from the camps, Camp Butler, Camp Hamilton, and surprise the rebels. General Ebenezer Pierce, a native of Massachusetts and a volunteer rather than a professional just like Butler, would lead the assault. A more experienced commander would have been welcomed by Butler, but according to the law of command, Pierce would outrank any of his experienced officers, and Butler himself would have to stay at Fort Monroe, uh, so he has to relinquish the actual field command of this operation to Pierce. Let's also introduce the two individuals who will be commanding on the side of the Confederates. John Bankhead Magruder and Daniel Harvey Hill, or D.H. Hill. Magruder was a native of Virginia and a graduate of West Point in 1830. As a young officer, he was breveted three times during the Mexican War. Known as Prince John for his flamboyant style, Magruder was a man of action. After the war, he would serve as a general in the Imperial Army in Mexico. D.H. Hill was the brother-in-law of Stonewall Jackson. He had also served in the Mexican-American War and had become a teacher at what is today Washington Lee University and the North Carolina Military Institute. Although he was a native of South Carolina, Hill would command North Carolinian troops at Big Bethel. D.H. was also not a very big fan of the Northerners. In fact, he had written a mathematics textbook with problems that were specifically to anger Yankees. Here is an example. Some of the New England states were fully and some partially represented in the Hartford Convention, which in the year 1814 gave aid and comfort to the British during the progress of the war. If four be added to the number of states fully and partially represented, and the square root of the sum be taken, the result will be the number of states fully represented. But if 11 be added to the sum of the states fully and partially represented, and the square root of the sum be taken, the result 
will be equal to the square root of 8 times the number of states partially represented. Required the number of states fully and partially represented. If someone wants to do that one and write in an answer, I'll probably just believe you. I won't check your work, so. Uh, but still, I would welcome the feedback. There was also a great one about how two Indiana soldiers ran away during the battle uh, of, I believe, Buena Vista in Mexico, and one uh, actually ran farther and faster than the other, so he, he wanted them to calculate the rate of speed uh, at which they were traveling. So that's a, that gives you an idea of, uh, of what uh, he is putting in these problems. When asked if he was afraid the North would not receive his book well, he replied that he did not much care. Hill would be a disciplinarian, an effective combat leader, but would also be described as harsh and abrupt, often insulting in an effort to be sarcastic. This would not make him many friends during the war. While we are still on introductions, I would also like to take the time to mention two officers in the 5th New York who will have an impact later in the war as well. They are Governor Warren and Judson Kilpatrick. Governor Kimball Warren was born in New York in 1830. He served as a topographical engineer working around the Mississippi River and Indian Territory. He would serve as Lieutenant Colonel of the 5th New York during the battle and would be promoted to full colonel at its conclusion. During the Battle of Gettysburg, Governor Wood realized the importance of the position at Little Round Top. By the end of the war, Warren would have been promoted to Major General and become a Corps Commander. Judson Kilpatrick was a captain in the 5th New York. After the battle, he would take command of the 2nd New York Cavalry, moving on to command not only a regiment, but a brigade and a division in the Union Army. Kilpatrick would accompany Sherman on his march to the sea. During the war, he gained the nicknames Little Kill and Kill Cavalry for his habit of dangerous cavalry charges. Although apparently a teetotaler, meaning that he did not drink, apparently Kilpatrick had a reputation as being a bit of a ladies' man, and I must say, he does have a pretty fantastic set of facial hair. I will do my best to post a picture to the website so you can see what I'm talking about here. Colonels of the 2nd, 3rd, and 7th New York were also present at the battle in order Frederick Carr, Joseph Townsend, and John Bendix. All three would rise to the rank of general during the war. Frederick Carr rose from humble beginnings as a cigar maker's apprentice. John Bendix was the son of German immigrants who had moved back to the fatherland after being less than inspired by prospects in the New World. His 7th New York was actually made up of mostly German immigrants. Townsend is breveted at the conclusion of his service. John W. Phelps, the former commander of the 1st Vermont, and who Butler most likely really wished uh, was leading the expedition, will go on to run for president in the 1880s. Fun fact. Phelps would go with Butler during the occupation of New Orleans, and interestingly, would refuse to use contraband slaves for labor purposes, something Butler had no problem doing, by the way, just throwing that out there. Phelps would resign and be offered 
a major generalship by Lincoln himself. The stubborn Vermont man wanted the commission to be retrograded back to his resignation date, a slight at Butler, and interestingly enough, Lincoln would actually refuse. Phillips would serve no further part in the conflict. Just as another small note, future Confederate Major General Robert Hoke also serves as a lieutenant in the North Carolina troops that are at Big Bethel. Talk about having some folks who are going to go on to bigger things. I know this may not be a very good comparison, but Big Bethel is almost like a minor league baseball game, and you can now say you saw these guys before they go on to the show. Anyway, I digress. Back to the battle. The surprise attack was launched on the night of June 9th, 1861. There was much confusion. In order to tell friend from foe, Union forces would tie a white band on the arm and use a watchword, Boston. These instructions would not be given to all the troops, however. Even experienced troops later in the war would have difficulties uh, performing maneuvers at night. It should also be noted that early in the war, there are a variety of uniforms. The 3rd New York actually wore gray. A friendly fire incident between Union regiments foiled the surprise. General Magruder was ready to launch an attack of his own on the Yankees, but decided the better course of action would be to fall back to his earthworks around Big Bethel. The Confederates had complained about digging, a less than glorious aspect of the war, but they had done a decent job and concealed their entrenchments well with brush. Despite the setback during the night, Pierce would resume the offensive during the 10th. Butler's plan had been for the Union troops to carry the rebel positions by the bayonet, meaning that they would charge the earthworks. His numerical superiority, he devised, would lead the northern men to victory. Although outnumbered, the Confederate forces were filled with younger men, many from military academies. You might think this would be a disadvantage, but early in the war, military academies would be more disciplined than the volunteer soldiers. In fact, there are accounts of VMI cadets training the volunteer Virginia regiments. That is Virginia Military Institute, by the way, and although pretty far in the future, we will see these young men again, but not as drill sergeants, so stay tuned for that. Pierce would give the honor of the first assault to the 5th New York, or Duryea Zwavs, who we talked about during the Zwavs uh, segment. They would move forward and be hit with rebel artillery fire, opening the battle. The Richmond Howitzers had a rifled parrot gun, the significance of which we discussed when we talked about rifling with small arms. The parrot gun was placed in front of a stream. Behind the stream lay the main Confederate earthworks with D.H. Hill commanding. The Zwaves would advance, but suffer the heaviest casualties of the battle, losing seven men killed and many more wounded. Judson Kilpatrick would take a bullet to the thigh, becoming the first Union officer wounded. It did not help matters that General Pierce had taken ill and retired to a buggy down the road away from the battle. With the 5th's initial assault repulsed, a new plan was taken up. Lieutenant Colonel Warren would surmise correctly that if another frontal assault was to take the place, 
the flanks of the Confederates would also have to be hit. During the lull in fighting, a small group of rebels ran forward to burn down a house providing cover to the enemy. Henry Wyatt, one of these men, was killed in the process, becoming the only Confederate fatality during the battle. Wyatt would actually become the first North Carolinian killed during the war. A new assault would take place, but more confusion and inexperience led to a contingent of men being lost, and Colonel Towson of the 3rd New York, thinking he was being outflanked by rebels, ordering a withdrawal. Theodore Winthrop, the aide of General Butler, author and young Yale graduate, had run forward with George Scott after leading one of the Union columns toward Big Bethel. Major Winthrop would lead men from the 7th New York on a flanking maneuver toward the Confederate right, while the 2nd and 3rd New York would provide a diversion on the Confederate front. After crossing the creek, Winthrop would lead the New Yorkers toward the rebel works, but was killed some 30 yards away from the enemy, most likely the closest the Union actually got. Sadly, most of Winthrop's work would not be published during his lifetime. The staunch abolitionist was quoted in a letter as saying, I go to end slavery when speaking of his enlistment. Winthrop had become friends with a fellow officer in the early stages of the war, Robert Gold Shaw, who would lead the 54th Massachusetts later in the conflict. Federal forces would withdraw after the unsuccessful assault, which turned into a rout. Lieutenant Grebel of the 2nd U.S. Artillery, whose battery had provided fire on the Confederates all throughout the battle, was the last of the Northerners to be killed covering the retreat. A regiment made up of sailors would ferry the men to safety. All said and done, the Union had lost 18 killed and 53 wounded, which included the friendly fire incident from the night before. The Confederates suffered 10 total casualties, only one fatality, of course, being Henry Wyatt. Present in the aftermath of the battle was Dorothea Dix, who cared for the wounded Union soldiers as they came back to Fort Monroe. Dix was born in 1802 in Hampton, Maine. After the war, she wrote a handful of books as well as started a school for girls in Boston. After a trip to Europe to improve her health, Dorothea would return and begin to fight for improved conditions for the mentally ill. She had met with several like-minded reformers during her trip. A tour of mental facilities in the United States would follow and eventually the establishment of several new asylums. She worked hard to get a bill passed through Congress, uh, known as the Bill for the Benefit of the Indignant Insane. This bill would set aside federal land to be used for the benefit of the mentally ill. While passed through the House and the Senate, it would be vetoed in 1854 by Franklin Pierce. Boo, Franklin Pierce, boo. Dorothea would tour Europe after the bill's failure, gaining an audience with Pope Pius IX, even though Dix was a stout Protestant. At the beginning of the Civil War, she would be named Superintendent of Army Nurses in the Union Army. Dorothea would recruit many female nurses, appointing some 3,000 during the war. All the while, she was an advocate for the training and expanding of opportunities for women, especially as nurses. Dix was praised by both sides for treatment of Union and Confederate soldiers alike. 
After the war, she would take up the mantle once again to advocate for better treatment of the mentally ill. There is a monument to honor deceased soldiers in Fort Monroe today that Dorothea Dix raised funds to create. While we are on the subject of nursing, June 9th would also see the beginning of the service of one Mary Ann Bickerdyke, or Mother Bickerdyke. Mary Ann was born in 1817 in Ohio and attended Oberlin College. Before the war, she worked with alternative medicines in Illinois. At the outbreak, she would deliver a donation to the hospital set up in Cairo, or Cairo, Illinois, which had a reputation for bad conditions. Bickerdyke would stay on at the hospital to help organize and improve conditions, working closely with the U.S. Sanitary Commission. Sanitation and cleanliness were practiced under her care. The washing of clothes, surfaces, and hands were particularly important. As the war progressed, she would follow the Union armies in the Western Theater, establishing 300-some hospitals along the way for the wounded soldiers as well as seeing 19 separate engagements. Many of her hospitals would be staffed with former slaves. When a surgeon questioned her authority, Mother Bickerdyke was reported to having said, On the authority of Lord God Almighty, have you anything that outranks that? William Tecumseh Sherman was also reported to have replied to his complaining staff, I can do nothing for you. She outranks me. At the Grand Review in Washington, D.C., after the war, Sherman insisted she ride at the head of one of the corps. There is a monument dedicated to Mary Ann Bickerdyke in Galesburg, Illinois, where she is buried. We can leave things like that for now. This week, we talked about the first pitch battle of the war. Big Bethel will be important because moving forward, keeping pressure off of Richmond will be the name of the game for the Confederates. Smaller battles early in the war, as already mentioned, will get a lot of attention. We also introduced two nursing greats, Dorothea Dix and Mary Ann Bickerdyke. Next week, we will talk about a few more small-scale engagements and introduce a massive figure of the war. You may have heard of him. His name is Ulysses S. Grant. If you like what you hear, please make sure to leave a review. Post it in the description. Should be a link to the website, Patreon, and Venmo information. Support for the general upkeep of the show would be welcomed. Once again, feedback is appreciated. The email is cwweeklypod at gmail.com. Questions, comments, concerns, all are welcome. Thank you so much for listening, and have a great week.